Mormon and Moroni both bid the Book of Mormon's readers farewell, each in his own distinctive way. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me again for Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson is Mormon chapters 7 through 9, I speak unto you as if you were present. And I wanted to mention at the beginning of the lesson, I'm not going to do any questions today simply because I haven't had time to select one. I do have a little bit of a backlog. And for all of those who have been waiting for the podcast to come back online, I want you to know I'm I'm now going through old emails and starting to respond. So if you have written me, even if it's months old, I want you to know I'm going to find it and I'm going to respond personally to each of you. And it means uh, it means so much to me. Uh, I'm getting a little emotional as I as I think of some of the messages that have been sent, messages of love and concern for me and for my family, uh, and quite often expressing that the fact that you're praying for us. And as I as I mentioned in my special episode uh, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, every time I hear that, it just reminds me of how grateful I am for the power of prayer and for the willingness of people to pray for me. Uh, and uh, anyway, thank you. Thank you so much. It means more than you will ever know. Well, maybe you will know, because hopefully you've had the opportunity to have people pray for you. Uh, so this is the final three chapters of the actual, the small Book of Mormon, I guess we'll call it. Mormon chapters 7 through 9, only one of which is by Mormon. Very short chapter, Mormon chapter 7. So this is Mormon's farewell. And I, I guess this is an opportunity for us to sort of examine who Mormon is. To me, uh, the chapter itself is so short. In fact, all the all the material for this lesson is so short we could get through it in just about no time at all. Uh, we'll spend a little more time on 8 and 9 because it gives us an introduction into Moroni's character. But here in chapter 7, it just gives us a chance to look back. And what do we know about Mormon? To me, it's interesting because Moroni shares his name with Captain Moroni. But the truth is, it's Mormon who is just like Captain Moroni. Mormon admired Captain Moroni from the Book of Alma so much that he named his son Moroni, but that doesn't mean his son was like Moroni. You know, when Mormon described Moroni and he said, if, if all men could be like Moroni, then the powers of hell would have been shaken forever. The same thing is true of Mormon. Mormon probably felt, I don't know, I don't know that he felt this way all the time, but I, I imagine there were moments, especially in his weaker moments, when he felt like he'd failed and he hadn't measured up somehow because his hero, Captain Moroni, had been victorious in his efforts to save the Nephites. And he, Mormon, had failed to do that. And therefore, he probably felt like he was less worthy. And the truth is, it was just, uh, it was his particular challenge in coming to earth that Captain Moroni would come down in a time when God's purposes uh, it was in, within God's purposes to have the Nephites emerge victorious, and uh, with Mormon, that just wasn't the case. So there is, there, I think there's a lot for us to learn from just contemplating that one 
similarity. Uh, but I want to also talk about just a little bit more about what we know about Mormon. Mormon is first and foremost, I mean, we, we obviously have been reading his words for a year now, and we think that uh, he must be this fantastic author, but the truth is, Mormon is a warrior. He's, he's part of this tradition of warrior prophets that is quite old, in fact. The, I'm sure it predates Moses, but Moses is probably the most prominent one we have in the Old Testament. There are certainly indications of conflicts uh, um, in the days of the patriarchs before the flood, and I imagine that prophets were leading their people into battle uh, before, the, before the time of even the time of Noah, but certainly shortly thereafter and the time of Abraham, etc. But Moses is where the Hebrews emerge as a people, and therefore there's uh, a group uh, that, that would have enemies and presumably go to war and fight. Now, obviously, it is not the uh, desire of Christ, as he has said, that people should contend with anger one with another. Nevertheless, it has often been the case that uh, the people of God have to unite and defend themselves against aggression because those who follow Satan will try to force their will on anyone they can. That is Satan's way. So as unfortunate as it is, occasionally the people of God need to unite and even gather themselves for battle. And so this tradition of the warrior prophet has had several manifestations throughout uh, historical record, the scriptural record. And like I said, Moses is one prominent example, and Joshua his successor. Both, both powerful warriors and very experienced warriors led their people into battle many times. David, Gideon, uh, these are some more examples from the Old Testament. But we also have, I think we have even more pure examples from the Book of Mormon. Nephi, obviously, the very first example, and several of his descendants that we have lost the record of. But all of the kings in the Book of Alma, I think, I mean, I believe that Mosiah the first, when he led his people away, he also had to defend them. Uh, Benjamin, I I can't remember if there's a, uh, a mention of him leading his people in battle, but certainly Mosiah. And then Alma, even though he wasn't a king, he was a prophet and he was the chief judge and he led his people in battle right there in the first part of Alma. And there are many times in the Book of Mormon when the chief general or the leader of the armies or the commander in chief, whatever you might call the leader of the Nephite armies, is not a prophet, but there are many times when he is. And Mormon is the last in a long line of this tradition of warrior prophets. And I guess the prophet, uh, P-R-O-F-I-T, the prophet that we take from knowing this is that Mormon is a man of action. And as we read the Book of Mormon, there's a lot of subtlety. Throughout the Book of Mormon, the text has a ton of subtlety, especially in the lessons that are taught by Jesus. And it made me wonder as I was pondering, you know, what, what did Mormon contribute as he was abridging all of those thousands of records, he must have read so much in order for us to uh, get the little bit that we have. And, I, and the Book of Mormon is a long book, but compared to what he began with, it is, so, it is such a little amount of text that uh, if any of you have ever worked in, in editing something, video editing especially, but sound editing as well, 
you'll know that when that when you start, if you're making a TV show, a documentary, for example, you might start with 17 hours of footage to get uh, a half an hour program, uh, you know, an episode for that week. You've got to spend so much time. And in order to cut all of that out, you have to watch it all. So what did Mormon contribute as he read all of these thousands of records and became familiar enough with them to know? Three weeks later, as he's reading uh, a mention of something that is important, he remembers that it's in these other plates and where were those. And so he, had, he just had a huge task to compile a record of an entire people for a thousand years and pick the most meaningful bits out of them and know what was in the will of God or the mind of God to communicate to us. And I wonder how much of the subtlety in the Book of Mormon is due to Mormon and how much of it was transmitted, you might say, unwittingly. How much of it did he not realize that he was just passing along and God was able to work through him because he was open to it? In any case, he does obviously seem to be a brilliant man, but I, but I also think, and, and this is important, I also think the, the cause of God needs men and women of action and courage who are willing to fight. Uh, Moroni, as we'll discuss, he seems to be a little more subtle. Mor- Moroni is an orator and someone experienced in rhetoric and in persuasive writing techniques. And we'll, we'll talk just a little bit about what some of those are uh, as we discuss chapters 8 and 9. Mormon, on the other hand, begins his chapter, not begins, but he in his chapter he has repeated use of this phrase, know ye, know ye that ye are the house of Israel. Know ye that you must come to the knowledge of your fathers. Know ye that you must lay down your weapons of war. Know ye that must come unto repentance or you cannot be saved. So these are the things that you, the readers, the future readers of the Book of Mormon, these are the things that you have to know. It's pretty direct. And then he obviously is going to leave us with a powerful testimony of Jesus. Uh, But here's something interesting. We're in Mormon chapter 7. In verse 9, he says, This, meaning the Book of Mormon, the, the large Book of Mormon, This is written for the intent that ye may believe that, that referring to the Bible. The Book of Mormon is written, and he's talking now to, to the descendants of the Lamanites and whatever descendants of the Nephites may mix in with them. He's saying, descendants of the Lamanites, this Book of Mormon is written for the intent that you might believe in the scriptures that you already have, this Bible that has come unto you. And if you believe that, if you believe the Bible, you will believe this also. It's an interesting insight into the purpose of the Book of Mormon. And I believe one of Mormon's chief animating principles was he wanted his uh, the descendants of his own people, if not himself, right, if not his own literal descendants, he wanted the, the figurative descendants or the cultural descendants of his ancestors, meaning the Lamanites, they had a common ancestor in Lehi, and possibly, and most probably, many times throughout the years, had intermixed. Uh, at least they shared a common ancestry, and at least they were of the house of Israel. He wanted these cultural descendants of his to have his words, and Moroni seems to be talking to all of the readership of the Book of Mormon more generally. But anyway, I wanted to bring that up about Mormon. It's, uh, I think that 
As we look around our world today, one of the things that is missing is a willingness, and obviously I'm going to speak figuratively. I'm not saying go out and uh, pick up a weapon and start actually fighting, but a willingness of the people of God to fight. People, uh, Christians in the world generally, they want to get along. And it may not surprise you to know that there is no more persecuted minority in the entire world than Christians. People who believe in Christ are mistreated and persecuted and the victims of genocide. I'm not saying historically today, right now, today, at this moment, Christians are suffering these kinds of persecutions and privations more than any other group. And one of the reasons, not the reason, there's probably not one reason that you could point to, but one of the reasons is because Christians have been taught to turn the other cheek. They've been taught that it is not Christ's will that we, like I said, even though this is only in the Book of Mormon, the the basic idea is in the Bible, that is not Christ's will that we contend with anger one with another. And Mormon is one of these followers of Christ, the warrior prophet, and it's almost an archetype. It's not. It doesn't mean that you actually have to be a prophet uh, in the sense that you're revealing God's word to his people and that you have to be a warrior in the sense that you're going to war. But if you follow in the tradition of the warrior prophet, you're willing to have a confrontation it may be a loving confrontation. If you remember, Jesus never shied away from confrontation. He was willing to uh, face up to a lie, a double standard, for example. Uh, these are the kinds of things he never shied away from. So Jesus was willing to fight in that sense. And in that sense, figuratively, uh, Jesus was very much also a warrior prophet because at, as we can remember, I imagine all of you now have in your minds the vision of the, the, the mental image of Jesus walking into the temple and turning over the, the, temp, the tables of the money changers. Jesus was willing, and that was a violent act, although it wasn't um, a brutal act, right? But Jesus was willing to fight to preserve what he believed in. But most of his fighting was done by putting himself in harm's way and by harm's way, I mean being becoming the focus of other people's irritation, ire, hostility, anger, because he was not willing to compromise with the truth. Now, he was always willing to be kind, and he was always willing to be forgiving, especially when those he was talking to humbled themselves. But for those who had a double standard, uh, who were being hypocrites, Jesus had very little patience for that. So in any case, I wanted to, to point that out, that there is this archetype, there is this energy of the warrior prophet, and I believe that Mormon was a perfect example of this, uh, every bit as perfect an example as Captain Moroni, his hero. And so the, the two of them sort of stand out as these young men who became mighty leaders and led their people in, in various battles throughout the entirety of their lives. Now, Mormon and Moroni, they were two men who had, they had this in common. They watched their people disintegrate and die. But the difference between them was this, and I don't know how significant it is without having known the men and having observed them and, and know a little bit more about the circumstances of their death. But, I, but the difference is that Mormon knew that his family, his, 
his son, his posterity would continue on after him. One of the things we're going to move on now to chapter eight and chapters eight and nine and talk about Moroni. One of the things that is never mentioned in the Book of Mormon about Moroni is anything about his wife or children. But we can do a little bit of math and a little bit of reading between the lines through the small Book of Mormon, and we can infer the date of the the approximate date of Mormon's birth which would have been around 300 uh, AD 310, I would think. So if Mormon was born AD 310, and uh, a Hebrew, a descendant of the Hebrew culture, considers that they come of age around 20 years of age, then any time after that, Moroni could have been born. So AD 330. And here we have, in chapter 8, we have Moroni saying it is 400 years since the coming of Christ in the flesh. So that tells us that Moroni himself is 70 years old when writing this. He's had a full life. It's already been 50, 15 years excuse me, since the final battle between Nephites and Lamanites, the battle at Cumorah, which finished the Nephites as a people and left them totally destroyed. In that battle, he would have been 55 years old. Moroni would have. So you may remember, if you listened to last week's episode, there was this period of peace, this 10-year treaty between the Nephites and the Lamanites, and that would have occurred about A.D. 350 to 360, which means that Mormon would have been 40 to 50 years old, and Moroni then would have been probably somewhere around 18, 17 or 18 years old at the start, and maybe 27, 28 when it was done. So they had this extended period of peace in which Moroni was in prime childbearing years, especially for uh, a more a, a less urban people than we have today. They wouldn't have waited. Their culture would not have been to wait to have children as long as we do. And therefore, it is a pretty good guess. We don't know for sure. Like I said, there's no mention at all. But it's a pretty good guess that Moroni was married and had children, if not during this time, which seems most likely then certainly throughout the the 70 years of his life, the 55 years of his life before this final battle and the 70 years of his life before he's writing his farewell. His first farewell, by the way, uh, Moroni wrote three of them. We'll talk about all of those. But the hopelessness that Mormon felt in seeing his people destroyed would have had some sort of mitigation because he has this child that he knows that is going to survive him and carry on his legacy. He, he likely knew, he probably had been, been shown, that his son would not survive, but at least he would not survive his own son. Now, Moroni had just the opposite experience. He watched his wife and his children die, and they died before him, and then he had to live on. If you've ever known someone who lost their spouse early in life, and then did not remarry, did not seem to move on, you might say. Um, it's an interesting thing to watch. They go throughout life, and they it's um, I, a good friend of mine has lost his father at a young age, and his mother never remarried. She's still alive today. It's been many years. And she just carries on. Her life, her, her marriage, if you were to ask her, you know, would, would you ever think about remarrying? She would say, oh, no, my husband's dead, right? She lost her husband and, 
and she considers that the rest of her life is a waiting period to be re- reunited with him. And there's, I'm, I certainly am not saying there's anything wrong with that view. My point is that this was Moroni's experience, and whether he chose it or not, he, he, well, let's put it this way, he had no choice. He was forced into that experience. When he lost his family, there was no possible way that he could ever, quote-unquote, move on. Not that anybody would ever move on from such a thing. But there was no prospect whatsoever of Moroni teaching a son, the way Mormon had, to carry on after him, to take up his records when he had finished them, to help him, for example, uh, during this 10 years of peace, I imagine that Moroni, being um, an older young man, just coming of age, would have been available to help his father with his work in, in abridging the plates and would have been very familiar with exactly how all of it was to be done. One of the things that Moroni says is that the plates were full. My father told you his purposes in doing all of this work and in writing these scriptures, uh, Moroni says. My father told you why he did it. And if I had space, this is my point, if I had space, I would tell you the same thing. So he's letting us know that the plates are full. Uh, we had a similar statement at just towards the end of the small plates of Nephi, right before the, uh, in the book of Omni, right before the words of Mormon, the final writer there said, and these plates are full and I make an end. And that's what Moroni is saying here. And he says, I don't know where to get ore. There's no one else around. Think about how difficult it would be to carry these plates. And we don't, there is mention of many records. We don't know exactly how many records Moroni had to carry with him. And if you can imagine the the process to refine and create more leaves to put on these plates, more pages, to add pages to the golden plates, uh, it's no wonder that he said, I I just am incapable of adding more pages to these plates. Now, uh, one thing that I'll say about that, and then we'll stop talking about that, but it does seem that he eventually figured it out. So the, the final battle between Nephites and Lamanites occurs A.D. 385. And shortly thereafter, we get Moroni chapter 7. Uh, I'm sorry, Mormon chapter 7. Mormon's final word to all of us. And then... It's 15 years later. There's a 15-year jump here between Mormon chapter 7 and Mormon chapter 8 when Moroni gives us his final sign-off. And so therefore Moroni has been alone for 15 years and he says, I just don't have anyone around. There's no friends that can help me. So he's got to forage for food. He's got to keep himself safe and he's got to keep moving. At what point could he stop and build a forge and find ore, refine, refine the ore, smelt the ore, uh, create the metal, pound the metal, and then etch the plates? Be very difficult. Nevertheless, he seems to have done it because we then have he has he lives for twenty one more years. He's been alone for fifteen years, and then he lives for twenty one more. We'll talk about that obviously over the next few weeks, but he finishes the book of Ether, or I should say he does for the book of Ether what his father Mormon did for the entire book of Mormon, which is to take the record of an ancient people, abridge it, and create a book of scripture from it. And then he obviously has more to say in the book of Moroni, and therefore 
Somewhere, Mormon did find some more plates, whether he recycled them from some other plates somewhere or whether he created them themselves. All right, so let's, that's an introduction into the Book of Moroni. Let's talk a little bit about Moroni and what we can learn about him here in the final two chapters of the Small Book of Mormon, chapters 8 and 9. First of all, why did I say that Moroni is an experienced orator, somebody who is familiar with the process of persuasive writing and persuasive speaking? We have a few indications of this. First of all, Moroni addresses several audiences. So in the first one we have evidence of is in Mormon chapter 8, verse 35. He says, I speak unto you as if you were present. All right, this is this is him saying, here's my audience for this next part of my speech. If you, if you find where he says these, and I'll mention each of them uh, just briefly, if you find where he says them and then look bet- immediately after it, you will see that each time he says, I speak unto you, dot, 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 what follows is specifically tailored to that audience that he described. I speak unto you as if you were present means I'm looking into the future, seeing the readers in front of me. Mormon chapter 9 verse 1. I speak also concerning those who do not believe in Christ. Chapter 9 verse 7. I speak unto you who deny the revelations of God. Chapter 9 verse 30. And then he obviously follows by, Uh, some very specifically tailored advice for those who deny revelations of God. Verse 30, I speak unto you as though I spake from the dead, for I know that you shall have my words. This is just one example of uh, specific modes that Moroni goes into. I'm going to talk a little bit about these modes, but the first thing I'm going to talk about is a colophon. A colophon is an artifact. And when you think of an artifact, you think of something you can actually dig up. Uh, but when you're, uh, when you, I'll give you an example of another meaning of the word artifact. When you're editing a photograph, and if you don't know what you're doing, let's say, and you're using Photoshop, and you cut this photograph in half, and then you put two people together, you make it look like they're in the same room, but they really weren't. And somebody experienced can go look at that photograph, and they say, hey, wait a minute, this guy, he has a shadow on one side of his face and uh, this other guy next to him has the shadow in a slightly different location. So I can tell that they are not in the same room at the same time. This photograph has been doctored and that is an artifact. And so when I use the word artifact today, I'm using it in that sense. A colophon is an artifact of an ancient manuscript that is often left by Uh, These ancient writers, especially religious writers, we find them a lot in old world documents, in fragments of manuscripts from the New Testament, especially a colophon saying, and this is what it means. This is when I'm writing, this is who I am and where I come from or who I come from. In other words, genealogy was really important, name and date. And if we, look, if we look in Mormon chapter 8, that's what we find. Moroni is writing a colophon. He says, Behold, I am Moroni, and my father, Mormon, was a descendant of Nephi. In other words, he's saying, My father was the heir to the royalty, to the leadership, to who had the birthright to rule over the Nephites. 
And that would have fallen to me if I, if there were any people at all. But obviously, I'm the last Nephite. I've been alone for 15 years. But my father was a direct descendant of Nephi. This is important information to a people that prizes genealogy as a form of their identity, as, a, as an integral part of their identity. Uh, and the date, it has been 400 years. We can assume that that date is pretty close. You know, he wouldn't be off by more than a few months, maybe a year. So he, he would have said it's 401 years if, if he meant that. So this isn't a rough estimate. I believe he's trying to be as exact as possible. Now I'm going to go back a little bit more and talk about the idea that Moroni had no family. Because when we think about Mormon and we think about his character, a perfect example of someone who is like him in the Book of Mormon is Captain Moroni. Moroni is different. He has a different personality and he had different life circumstances. If you want to send me an email and guess who in the Book of Mormon reminds you most of Moroni, we'll see if any of you have the same guess that I do next time. Uh, but the, oh, And send those to gt at gospeltoctrine.com. But there is someone else in the Book of Mormon who went through something very similar that Moroni did. That's a little hint. And and has, a, I believe, a, a similar teaching style. And here's what I've been pondering about Moroni. Since he knew he had no family to carry on after him, and he wants to leave a parting blessing, who would he leave that blessing on? And how would he do it? And what scriptural examples would he pull from to know how to do it? So as I was considering this, I was thinking, how did, how did Moroni find meaning in his life? How did he think to himself, I'm going to get up today, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, and I'm going to keep marching around and avoiding the Lamanites all day, and then tonight I'm going to find somewhere new to sleep, and I'm going to find something to eat. How did he do that for year after year after year? How did he find meaning in his continued existence when he knew that no one would carry on after him? He had this book. It was such an important book. And the only way that he could have, that this all could have been worth it, what he went through could have been worth it, is if he had such an abiding certainty that people would read what he was writing and how much it would mean to them, how important it would be, that it made it all worth it. The only way that he could have that certainty is through constant Communi communication with the Holy Ghost and reinforcing of his um, of his discouragement of his despair from God. Now, if we look back in the book of Second Nephi, the first part of the book of Second Nephi, Lehi does something that we that we saw even before that. We'll talk about that too. He he gathers his children around them and he gives them each a blessing. And because Lehi was the patriarch of his extended family, this is. What, this is the scriptural equivalent of a patriarchal blessing. He says to each of them, here is the choices that will be laid before you in your life, and here is my counsel for you, how you should approach each of those opportunities that is going to come to you. We have an earlier example in the book of Genesis. In chapters 48 and 49, Jacob gathers his family around. He knows he's going to die, and he does the same thing. He has many sons, and he gives them each a blessing. And, and he was the patriarch, and this was a patriarchal blessing. Now Moroni, the same thing is going to happen. He believes he's going to die. As we 
know from uh, retrospect, 2020 hindsight, we can see that Moroni is going to live a little longer. But he is bidding us farewell, and he has no posterity. Whom does he consider to be his posterity, if not us? Moroni would have had constant visions, in or- and this is my belief. This is, uh, I don't know how constant his visions were from the text. We do know that he did see us, and he says that God has shown me all of your ways. I've mentioned in the past the idea of spiritual bandwidth. How quickly can God put information into your mind? And the evidence from the scriptures seems to be that he can put stuff in there pretty darn quickly. So these overarching visions that different prophets were privileged to see uh, through the scriptures, Enoch, Moses, Nephi, the brother of Jared, and of course Moroni, Mormon, they saw our day. And Moses, at least, is described as having seen the entire world, and there was not a particle thereof that he did not behold. So the spiritual bandwidth to get all that information into his mind was so high that he could see every, every particle, not just every person. So Moroni, we can assume, was having these visions where he would see all of us and see our day. And I believe he saw us as his children. This is his patriarchal blessing. And as we divide up these two chapters... He is speaking to different children. He's saying, you, my child who is like Laman, you're disobedient, you don't believe in Christ. You, my child who's like Lemuel, you have denied the miracles of God. You, my child who is uh, reading this as if it's a voice from the dust, you're the one who's, you're like Nephi, you're listening, right? So he's, he's taking his children, he's identifying his audiences, and he's saying, I love you all so much, I've seen you. I'm doing this for you. I'm suffering each and every day for you and, and writing down in suffering the, the things that God has prompted me to write, not because I want to continue to exist. I wish my time on earth were over a long time ago, but I am going to continue to fulfill the promises and purposes of God because it's worth it to me because I've seen you and God is constantly showing you to me. So to make it worth it for me to continue to suffer the way I do. I had the opportunity, uh, this is just a side note, but I had the opportunity the other day to watch a movie called Harriet. And this is a movie about Harriet Tubman, who was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. She helped slaves to escape before the time of the Civil War. And it it occurred to me as I'm watching this movie, she escapes slavery and then she goes back into the South where... Her very existence there is a danger. It occurred to me that it is it was more dangerous. It probably would have been more scary, more frightening for her to go back into the southern United States where slavery was still legal than it would have been for a Jew to enter Nazi Germany during in the time before World War II. Because a Jew at least has the possibility of blending in. If they can dress like a German and look like a German, they obviously speak German, then they could blend in and no one need know that they're a Jew. But she had no way of blending in. She had to pre- pretend she was a free black person, but at any moment that ruse could be discovered and she would have been returned to a state of horrible slavery. That is the kind of existence, in any case, which of those two situations was worse is not the point. 
That was the kind of situation that Moroni was in for the whole rest of his life. For over 35 years, he lived this way. He was in a strange, hostile land where anyone who found him would have killed him. He was constantly having to find food, shelter, and clothing, and safety, first aid, water, all of these things that are necessary for survival, and then in addition, do the work of the Lord, possibly find those who are in need of his help, possibly abridge the records, create plates, whatever else he had to do, he had, the, he had not only to survive, but a work to do in the middle of this hostile environment. And Harriet Tubman at times found herself hundreds of miles from the nearest border that represented safety. But for Moroni, there was no border. There was nowhere he could go. Literally no place was safe for him on the face of the earth. And he lived that way for 35 years. The bleak outlook that I think any of us would adopt in a very short time would have been crippling. And yet he seemed, he doesn't speak about his own suffering, except to say those very terribly sad words that the Lamanites, they kill everyone who will not deny Christ, and I will not deny Christ. Except, he says, I am alone, my father hath been slain in battle, and all my kinsfolk, and I have not friends nor whither to go. And then for the rest of his writings, he doesn't talk really about how much he's suffering. And so, as I've been pondering this, how did he keep going? Uh, because it was important for me to know. It was important for me to understand who Moroni the man was. And that's pretty much the central question about his life, is how did he keep going? Uh, That's when it occurred to me, he wants to give us our patriarchal blessing. He is seeing us as his children. You and I and our children and our ancestors, anyone who has ever picked up the Book of Mormon and read it, Those are his children. He looked in the future and was shown us through this gigantic amount of spiritual bandwidth that God is capable of giving to his prophets. He was shown the people who would pick up his writings, and that gave him the courage and the motivation to carry on. So with that introduction, I'm going to talk about some of these modes, you might call them. Uh, I've I've already told you about the audiences that he addressed, but Moroni also employs several different modes of writing, and that's the best word I can use to describe it. Moroni says in one of these examples, and this is forecasting. So in uh, Moroni chapter 8, verse 26, no one needs say they shall not come, for surely, for they surely shall, for the Lord hath spoken it. He's speaking about the plates, the words that he's writing. They, no one needs say that they shall not come forth, for out of the earth shall they come by the hand of the Lord. Uh, verse 27, it shall come in a day when the blood of saints shall cry unto the Lord. Verse 28, it shall come in a day when the power of God shall be denied. And I'm skipping over a lot of things. Verse 29, it shall come in a day when there shall be heard of fires and tempests. Verse 30, there shall also be heard wars, rumors of wars, etc. So he's forecasting here. He's making prophecies about the future. This is one of his modes. This is one of his children, right? This is part of his patriarchal blessing for the future. Incidentally, if you've read the, the book Saints that comes along with your gospel library, it is uh, an extensively researched history of the modern church, the restored church. And part of the backdrop for Joseph Smith's first vision is that there was a, an eruption, a volcanic eruption that basically coated the globe a couple of years before Joseph's family 
relocated. And this, this cooling and reduced fertility, farming fertility around the world, caused a lot of people to lose their homes, lose their farms, have to move. And this is so interesting because uh, this is a prophecy of that day. It shall come in a day, this is Mormon 8.29. It shall come in a day when there shall be heard of fires and tempests and vapors of smoke in foreign lands. In this case, the foreign land was Sumbawa, and it's one of the islands of Indonesia. The volcano that erupted there put out so much ash that 1815 was often called the year without a summer. So this is well documented, and interestingly enough, uh, it, it had an effect on the worldwide economy. Let's take a look at another mode in verses 38 through 40 of Mormon chapter 8. O ye pollutions, ye hypocrites, ye teachers, who sell yourselves for that which will canker, why have ye polluted the holy church of God? Why are ye ashamed to take upon you the name of Christ? Why do ye not think that greater is the value of an endless happiness than that misery which never dies? This is the questioning mode. So if we were to read through these three verses, you'd see that why several times. Why do you adorn yourselves? with that which hath no life, and yet suffer the hungry and the needy and the naked, and the sick and afflicted to pass you by to pass by you and notice them not. So these questioning uh, in verse thirty three, if we go back a little ways, beholding Behold, look ye unto the revelations of God, for behold, the time cometh at that day when all these things must be fulfilled. Behold, the Lord has shown unto me great and marvelous things concerning that which must shortly come. Behold, I speak unto you as if you were present. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know your doing. This is how. This is one of the ways that we know that Moroni has been given this knowledge of the people that will read his words. In chapter 9, we find more of these modes. Verse 2 Moroni describes the day of judgment, and he says, Then will ye say that there is no God? Then will ye longer deny the Christ? Or can ye behold the Lamb of God? In verse 6, Oh, then ye, and, and there's plenty more challenges in between. Oh, then ye unbelieving, turn ye into the Lord, cry mightily unto the Father, and perhaps you may be found spotless. So this is the, this is the challenging mode. Verse 21 in chapter 9, Behold, I say unto you that whoso believeth in Christ, doubting nothing, whatsoever he shall ask the Father in the name of Christ, it shall be granted him. And this promise is unto all, even to the ends of the earth. This is the exhorting mode. Move forward a little, a little farther in the verse, you'll see the commanding mode. Despise not and wonder not, verse 27, but hearken to the words of the Lord and ask the Father in the name of Jesus. Now, there's no master list of what the modes are, but this is also another artifact of an ancient record, is that these ancient rhetoricians would have been very familiar with exactly what mode they were in as they went from audience to audience. If they were writing a letter, an epistle, or any sort of general essay, as we would call it today, for general consumption, and they don't know who exactly the audience is going to be, they would be very conscious of moving from one intended audience to the next and using different modes. And as I was as I was thinking about all of these different modes, I realized that each time 
Moroni changes voices, as it were, he is talking to a different category of reader. And each of these categories of readers, he's leaving a blessing on their heads, and he's leaving an admonition. It's exactly like Lehi talking to his children, saying, Oh, be wise, why will ye die? Rise up from the dust, my sons, and be men. Right? This is very similar to the attitude that Lehi had as he is trying with all the feelings of a tender parent, as Lehi described it, to get his children to repent. This is his last chance to tell them all of the things that they need to know before he goes on and is separated from them forever. And so this is Moroni having seen us and having been shown our day from Jesus Christ himself, trying with all the feelings of a tender parent, even though he has no living children. God wanted him to focus. He, he is without his children because God needed Moroni to be focused. For the meaning of his life, he could no longer be focused on his own family. He had to find meaning in envisioning you and me today in our lives and in imparting to us those truths which were going to be most helpful to us. So then our question is, as we read, now I, I challenge you, I exhort you, I command you to go back and reread uh, Mormon chapters 8 and 9 and find those different modes and decide which one of these do I fit in? Which of the children of Moroni am I? Which of these patriarchal blessings is going to be put upon my head? Which will I carry with me? Which of these blessings do I deserve? Which of these admonitions, which of these curses do I hope to avoid? So we have two prophets, wonderful prophets, having, uh, who have been given visions of the future, saying goodbye to us here. Moroni doesn't know he's going to go on in the years to come. At this point, he does not know he's going to go on to abridge the book of Ether and then to write more on top of that. So he says goodbye. He thinks this is, this is the last time he'll write to us. And evidently, as I said, he probably finds some more plates or he makes them. And then he abridges the record of Ether, as we'll discuss next time. And then he writes some more of his own words. But this is his first goodbye, and he's telling us, with all the feelings of the tender parent, Mormon, giving us a man of actions goodbye. Look, stop doing what you're doing. You Here's what you need to know, and you need to repent, and you need to believe in Christ. Goodbye, I love you. And Moroni is quite different. He's a lot more subtle, and he's a lot more complete. He's probably given a more detailed vision of exactly who we are going to be. So, what we learn from these two prophets is number one, let's be warrior prophets. And so let's allow the, the, the energy, the spirit, the idea of the warrior prophet to live inside of us. And this might be nothing more than saying, hey, I noticed that something's off, right? I don't feel right. I noticed that uh, there's hypocrisy here. The, the energy of a warrior prophet can be loving, can be peaceful, can be calm, but it is unflinching in saying the words that Jesus Christ would have us say, the way that Jesus did. That's the energy of the warrior prophet, and it's, I think we're all going to have to learn it at some point. Uh, it can be so powerful. It's one of the things that I probably need to learn more than anything else, at, and that's why I admire it so much. And then with Moroni, the idea that we can find meaning, even in defeat, even in loneliness, that we can keep going. We think that 
our life should have had a meaning, right? Moroni lost all of his family, and that probably was what he thought that the meaning of his life should be. I was going to teach my kids to carry on after I was gone. I was going to teach them the gospel. I was going to teach them to have kids of their own. And I was going to teach them all the important ways to follow Christ. And then they were going to carry that on. That was going to be the meaning of my life, Moroni thought. And then it turned out that God had a different meaning for him. And so he was in, he was living in a state of defeat and of loss and of wondering, of questioning, do I even have a meaning? I screwed everything up or I, lo- I stepped off the path somewhere and now everything's meaningless. And yet he kept doing it because he had so much constant communion with the Holy Ghost and God was willing to then step in and support him and show him, look, your life does have meaning. You mean everything. You have children. You have important work. You have a purpose and you can never give up. Uh, There are some more indications. I wish we could go into all of Moroni's writings in this lesson, but we'll, we'll study them in the weeks to come. There are more indications that this is what Moroni was going through, because he knows more about this process than anyone else. But if this is the way that you have ever felt, then you have a prophet in the Book of Mormon who understands you completely, because this is the way Moroni felt. I don't know that anyone has ever gone through something like he went through. He was 35 years in a hunted state, and therefore we have this warrior prophet, and we have this prophet who endured these two powerful, shining examples of how to love some uh, a group of people that they would never meet, that they had only seen in a vision. And they were willing to find meaning in their lives in unexpected ways because of the influence of, of the Holy Ghost that they allowed to come upon them. So I hope that we can learn those lessons from these two wonderful prophets, the last two prophets of the Book of Mormon. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.